Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, your host for this episode, and this episode is part two of the SAA poster session interviews. While at the 2019 Society for American Archaeology conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Chelsea and I recorded a few interviews during the poster sessions. The poster sessions are a great way to meet a variety of archaeologists hoping to share their research with the rest of the archaeology community. Please excuse the poor sound quality. We were recording with literally hundreds to thousands of archaeologists all around us. On this episode, hear about the unique research being conducted by Tia R. Cody, Santmu Khalsa, Catherine Portman, Alexandra C. Younger, and Jessica N. Bernstetter. I'm here with Tia R. Cody, and she's doing her poster on eroding chances in an age of dramatic climate change. How do archaeologists prioritize sites? And this is by Tia R. Cody and Shelby Anderson of Portland State University. What can you tell me about your poster and research? Hi. Um, so this poster is describing a way of creating a prioritization matrix. So a way of prioritizing sites for archaeologists to know which sites are important and which sites are, you know, of course important, but ones that we can leave to a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, so. In, from 2014 to 2016, the National Park Service did a survey along coastal areas in northwest Alaska in um, the Bering uh, Land Bridge National Preserve and Cape Cruisenster National Monument, um, which are massive areas. That sounds like a massive <laughs> area to be working with. Yeah, so they did a bunch of survey and they recorded 182 sites, um, oh both previously recorded and newly recorded sites. Um, and it was recording different levels of erosion um, effects by climate change. And climate change is real. <laughs> climate change is is hella real. Um, so they collected a bunch of data, um, you know, did field survey, photographs, GPS, and then they gave it to Shelby and I to basically create the report bring all the data together and apply this prioritization matrix. So the matrix uses disaster management language and concepts to inform us in what is affecting a site, how uh, vulnerable is that site to that threat. Because some sites are have erosion and wind effects, but they're not really that vulnerable to that, so they're a little more protected. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's looking at that and then applying a matrix, so giving the site scores. Okay. So as you can see here, we have like, for this site here, we have hazards of wind and water erosion. The site vulnerability is pretty vulnerable to those erosive forces. Um, The condition is actually pretty good. It was originally recorded in 1988 and then revisited in 2015. All the original features were identified again. However, there was significant erosion to them and new features were identified due to erosion. So the vulnerability is definitely there and but the condition is still pretty good um, as you can see it got a, a fair condition score so it got a two um, and then the site significance is it's highly significant it's a large village site with a lot of cash features semi-subterranean houses so it's a site that can really tell us a lot about the uh, people who lived in northwest Alaska um, so it gets a high significance rating of three so when you add those all up and then multiply it by its significance score you get its prioritization score so anything from like I believe a 24 to a 36 was considered a high priority site so for high priorities, that mean like excavate or what? Or just like generally, all kinds of mitigations are being taken place. 
Yeah, usually um, any kind of mitigation that would be considered um, either prudent or necessary by both the archaeologists and the native communities. Um, so some of them are definitely like, let's go data, data recovery, let's do some okay. excavation, let's make sure we get all the stuff before it's gone. Others might be, how can we protect this site? It's affected by wind and water erosion, what can we do to protect it from those forces? Also, you know, working closely with native communities on what they want to see. Um, so after we applied the prioritization matrix to 182 sites, we got 37 high, 69 moderate, and 48 low priority. And then sadly, we had 30 sites that they, there wasn't enough data recorded oh, no. in the field for me to give the site a significance or a prioritization score. Mm -hmm. um, but it worked great. It gives us that beautiful bell curve, um, and it shows us which sites we need to go out to. Uh -huh. um, so the pros is that it's um, it's successful, so woo. Excellent. Um, but it's also, it's generalizable so that it can be used in multiple regions. So it's not oh, just focused on Alaska. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's usually, it's easy to perform. So people of varying skill levels can use this. Like I would say someone like fresh out of undergrad on their first ever project would easily be able to use this score or this prioritization matrix. Mm -hmm. um, the cons are it's subjective. So it's kind of the researcher going through and seeing. So um, there is that level. Um, it also only takes into account the archaeological perspective. Okay. So this prioritization matrix does not use native community um, language on sites or what they consider oh, important. I see. Okay. So Shelby and I were definitely like, that is something we'd love to do next, is get the native communities involved, um, because these are their resources. Mm -hmm. um, and then. Um, Based simply just for how the prioritization works and archaeological bias, lithic scatters can get passed by and be given oh, yeah. lower scores. Um, and we did see, magically, one of our lithic scatters got a high score. And then we, we did some um, radiocarbon dating, and it gave us a date that is like really rare to see. Others, so we were like, OK, this shows that like if it has datable potential, it should be given a higher score simply sure. because like you can get a date off it. But it worked fantastically. Um, it was super easy to use because she was the genius behind it and came up with it and I just <laughs> applied it. Um, but it worked really well and it's a great tool, I think, for archaeologists to start uh, triaging archaeological sites. That is fascinating. And um, was there a site, just generally speaking, that you thought was just absolutely amazing that you're like, oh my gosh, we need to do data recovery right now? And if so, what is that site? Um, so I actually think it is um, this site here, KTZ 148. It's a super large lithic scatter. Um, it has been radiocarbon dated, um, but it's such an amazing site. It's got house floors eroding out. But this, the thing about Alaska is, is that the preservation there is astounding. And so because of permafrost or? The permafrost and that um, when it gets buried, there's not a lot of like oxygen content that like gets down there. Um, but the preservation is amazing. So almost every site here is like one that you'd want to go out and look oh at. Because there's, it's it's almost ridiculous how like neat the archaeological <laughs> sites and all that. Because I do work in Oregon. And so it was like almost like aggravating to be like, well, fine, Alaska. I see you with your beautiful <laughs> preserved sites. <laughs> but yeah. So I think, personally, I thought KTZ-148 was a really cool, cool site. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for telling me about your research. I look forward to seeing how this can be used at other places and hear more about the next steps you guys want to take. Thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, thanks for coming by. I'm here with Santi Kalsa with her poster, Everyday Objects and the Lived Experience, Inhabiting, and I'm 
cannot pronounce that word, inhabiting Gufuskalar, a late medieval Icelandic fishing station. Thank you so much for talking to me about your research. Please tell me about your poster and what it's all about. So the site is a 15th to 17th century fishing station in Iceland, and it's a really dynamic period because the 15th century is bookended by plague episodes, uh, with a lot of the population dying off, maybe as much as 70%. Um, this, the fishing site is very interesting because what we're seeing there um, is a, a sort of a typical um, Icelandic fishing signature, and we're seeing it ramping up to pre-industrial fishing. But the surprise is that we're finding thousands of artifacts. So we have probably about 3,000 artifacts there of uh, durable uh, goods, uh, a lot of them European trade items. And we don't usually find these goods in non-elite settings in Iceland. We almost we tend to find almost no goods, no durable goods uh, at, at sites or maybe tens of goods. And so this is a real anomaly. Um, and so fishing stations aren't really considered to be elite settings because fishing stations are, they're understood to be, um, the, the crews are usually made up of farm labor who are working there just for the winter season while there is no farming. And by law, they're not allowed to work at other seasons. Yeah, so their labor is really, really controlled. They're illegally tied to the land and cannot leave it. So during this period, because perhaps the Black Death and maybe a loosening of controls by the elite... They uh, don't have a choice. <laughs> right. So these, these fishermen are um, they're at this site, they're inhabiting it, and they seem to be having direct access to trade, to trade goods from Europe. And this is anomalous because trade goods typically are understood to go through trading stations and there's a trading station only a few miles away mm -hmm. so it seems like that they might actually be getting away with something by having direct access to trade goods so the question is sort of this this tension between whether they're trading these goods on or whether they're actually using them themselves and whether we can see their own lifestyle uh, reflected in the the goods that we're finding at the site and we think that there could be a combination of things happening. It could be a little bit of A, a little bit of B. But it's likely that they are using these goods because we do find discarded broken items that seem to be having useware signatures. So they're not just passing through. So they seem to be having really good lifestyles. The zooarchaeological evidence um, is really showing us that they have, in addition to the fishing, they have choice cuts of meat, uh, um, sheep and lamb, and they are eating uh, with cutlery. So, yeah, so we have about 50 knives uh, showing up at the site, which is incredible, a huge number. And at least five of those are cutlery. So they have uh, bone or horn handles, carved beautifully, and uh, they have copper rivets and then usually a cast copper pommel. So these are not all-purpose knives. Yeah. They would only be used in sort of a eating situation and the idea that they're being used to eat choice cuts of meat really makes sense. Okay. Uh, and then we're also finding all kinds of other things that are interesting at the site uh, having to do with the home setting. So we usually overlooked aspect of the archaeological record, unfortunately. Absolutely. And at fishing stations, that's really difficult because there tends to be no uh, architectural evidence. So we can see 
stones, but we can't usually see the shape that the buildings were in, what they were roofed with. And at this site in particular, we see the structures, but we think that they were being destroyed over and over again by winter storms mm -hmm. and then being rebuilt. And every year they seem to be re rebuilt more sloppily and sort of smaller. And so this prevents us from understanding what their living conditions were like. Other so, than rough. Exactly. <laughs> and we know that the winter seasons are very rough. We know that uh, right now the coastline is being uh, eroded a great deal every winter. The winter stormy season takes uh, one to three meters every winter. So the site is eroding precipitously. Okay. And so that period of time during the 15th to 17th century is part of the, uh, the Little Ice Age. Oh, yes. So this is a period of time when we think there was a lot of storminess in the North Atlantic. So it's not surprising that their uh, houses were being destroyed. Uh, and so we think that this idea that they had really dangerous and difficult work in, in rough conditions uh, seems well supported. So the really rich material culture signature is very curious in that setting. It also looks like a European medieval signature, which means that we have to wonder, are these Icelanders who are now living a sort of European medieval lifestyle? Are there Englishmen who are maybe part of this, this actual fishing settlement? So we don't really know who they are, and it's really difficult to tell who they are because the goods are all coming from Europe. And are there any um, human remains there for like DNA testing, or is it pretty much pretty ephemeral no matter where you are? There are no human remains. We have no mortuary settings at all, no, no burials. Oh, uh, we've found, I believe, one human tooth. So <laughs> hopefully we'll get some research done on that. Um, we, I, I think the idea is that that tooth might be from a child. And so that, that touches on the next topic that we're trying to understand, which is uh, because these, these settings were usually seasonal um, and because they're understood to be purely economic, they were assumed to be inhabited by men. Just dudes, that's it. That's it. And having one child doesn't really tell you that much, but the goods at the site, um, they don't look like an ephemeral setting. They don't look like people are just showing up, doing their work, and leaving. They look like people are living there. They're living full lives. We see that of the, the total amount uh, so far identified, we have um, 212 fishing-related implements, but we have 417 domestic-related. And what are those domestic items like? They are all over the place. They can be um, hair and sewing pins. Uh, sewing needles, uh, clothing fasteners like buckles, uh, clothing hooks, and um, lace shapes uh, or lace points. They are also uh, construction items that look like they are for buildings uh, or for trunks. Okay. And we see uh, copper alloy fittings for a trunk, so a lot of this, and locks, padlocks, keys. So we know that they're, they have valuables and they're storing them. We don't know what those valuables are, but it's clear that there is some sense of permanence that they're carrying around stuff. And the, they might be filled with trade goods. That's at one possibility. That's cool. uh -huh. 
Um, we're also, uh, the knives and knife sharpeners are also part of that collection. Okay. Uh, we, we think of those usually as multi-purpose items because they're used for fishing, mm -hmm. they're used for eating, they're used for everything, but the fancy knives, not so much. Not so much. Uh, and then we have just decorative items also. And what are you hoping to do in the future with this research? Hmm, good question. Um, Write a book? Yeah, I, I would like to publish some articles. Uh, I'm working with Frank Feely, who does the animal bones, the zooarchaeology from the site, and he and I would like to work together on some of some of these items uh, and, and publish together. Uh, but this is my doctoral research. And just as a fun final thing, at the site, what is one of your favorite things that you found there in the course of your research? Very easy answer. What is So, one of the things that we found in large quantities are copper or alloy scraps. They are sometimes folded, sometimes uh, cut with snips, and they are all over the place and they're a mystery because we don't know what they're for, why they're there. And uh, during one of our uh, periods of excavation in 2015, we were excavating a wall fill that seemed to have the remains of a sort of a craft production area. Okay. And in it we were finding cra uh, these copper alloy scraps that looked a lot like the other ones we had been finding. But we were also finding uh, these stone pieces, one of which was carved um, into a, a casting mold. Okay. And the casting mold had different areas for making copper alloy mounts that you would put onto belts okay. or straps. Uh, pretty, pretty. some of them plain, some of them with flower designs. And so these are really beautiful, really little, you know, would be very little things, but they this is uh, a sort of a chalky stone, and we were finding raw pieces of this stone okay. at the site. So they may have been carving these casting molds at Not the site. Not only trading, but making the material themselves. Yes. Oh, that's so cool. Yes. So we have two casting stones uh, that are that are carved, that are complete, and. While we were excavating this wall fill, uh, I was working the sieve, and my site director, Lilia Paul's doctor, she was excavating, and she was asking me to show her everything <laughs> as I was bringing it out from the sieve. And at one point, I said, oh, and the last thing is this little copper scrap. And she said, <gasps> and she took it from my hand, and she fit it exactly into the casting mold. Oh my gosh, that's insane. Oh my gosh. That is really, really cool. That like never happens where you can piece those things together. Yeah, absolutely. So my that is so cool. most exciting moment on the site and still my favorite item that we that found. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for telling me about your research and I look forward to hearing and seeing more about it. Thank you so much. Let's take a quick break. During the break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology Patreon account? And there you can learn how to support the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog, and check out some of the blog posts we've been posting on our blog. You can see the different ways to become a patron of the Women in Archaeology, from $2 to $5 to $10, or even just showing your support and interest is always great. Thank you very much for listening, and hope you enjoy the rest of the episode.
pastor of First Impressions of the Mesa Verde North Escarpment, created by Catherine A. Portman and Kelsey M. Reese. And I'm here with Kelsey, and she's going to be telling me a little more about the research that the poster is all about. So tell me about this project. What were you guys doing out there? So this project basically started because uh, we have this area called the Mesa Verde North Escarpment, which directly abuts Mesa Verde National Park in southwestern Colorado. Um, and Mesa Verde National Park is one of the most intensively surveyed uh, spaces in the entire southwest and is considered to essentially have 100% survey coverage. But despite all of that, um, we barely have any survey coverage on the North Escarpment. And so we've got this space that directly abuts it and it's the area that anybody would have to be walking through to get from the escarpment into any other part of southwestern Colorado. Um, but we don't really know what's going on out there. We've had a couple projects that, uh, you know, pipelines and electrical lines uh, going into the national park that have been surveyed, and a couple other projects um, that have yielded really uh, interesting results, um, suggesting that there might be the most dense Pueblo II or about 8,900 to 1,100 uh, occupation uh, in the entire Mesa Verde region sitting on the North Escarpment. But we just don't know because we don't have a lot of uh, right spatial coverage. So, so this so is just like initial getting even an idea. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so in the summer of 2018, we, we spent 11 days out there. I had a field crew ranging from about two to five people. And we were able to cover about seven and a half square kilometers of area and really for that like what is out here what are we going to have to deal with um, to try to set up a bigger project for this upcoming summer yeah. that's really cool that's <laughs> a lot of work and so um in terms of you got a lot of preliminary field work um what are your i see on the poster here initial impressions and whatnot like how do you was there um like extreme densities or like right so actually, most interestingly, I, we spent most of our survey time uh, kind of covering the eastern side of the escarpment. And uh, if you're looking at the escarpment or you're familiar with it, in Mesa Verde National Park, there's a feature called the Knife Edge. And so it was actually the original access road to Mesa Verde went around the Knife Edge, which had been a real scary ride. But, um, but kind of everything below that on the escarpment, we didn't find anything. There was no occupation out there at all, which is also probably why we could cover seven and a half square kilometers in such a short amount of time. We didn't have much to map. Um, but, but it was really interesting because, because just you know directly west of that, we have one of those super dense Pueblo II occupations. So we kind of almost found that like eastern periphery of the um, occupation of the escarpment. Okay. And so now that we kind of have that side of things, you know, delineated, um, this summer we'll be kind of moving west from that, that dense Pueblo II occupation into other areas that we kind of do know what's going on. And then we get to a spot that there's just, there's no survey coverage at all. Um, and, you know, we'll be doing a combination of pedestrian survey, and we also have some LIDAR set up to come oh, out and help nice. us out with that as well. Yeah. And I understand you had a lot of fun with a drone? Yeah, so <laughs> so also as part of this project, we were trying to figure out how to effectively use um, drones in the field because it is such a large area. Um, you know, how can, we, how can we use this new technology to uh, maximize our time out in the field, get high quality results, uh, increase our survey coverage, and all while minimizing costs. 
So we also did a project last summer that looked at you know, a combination of land cover and drone flight heights to try to figure out uh, the best way to collect um, aerial imagery and then uh, process that all for free. Uh, to create digital terrain models um, across the escarpment. So we've, we've got like a preliminary kind of, you know, image data set with that. Um, but this summer we'll definitely be able to, to spend some more time doing some imaging. And then of course all of those things can be processed once we're out of the field. And, and I kind of like that idea because it, it almost extends your field season. You know, if you can only be there for a month physically, you can still run all of those images afterwards and, and basically get a couple months worth of work nice. out of just a month in the field. Nice. That's really cool. Yeah. And of the entire time you guys were out there, what was the most exciting thing you found? Oh, God. Or one of your isn't the Isn't the question, it's not what you find, it's what you find out, right? That isn't is that? true. <laughs> As I like to say, it's dirt and knowledge. Right. You know, it's all wonderful. But just for... For yours, like the uh, when you're like, oh yeah, this is awesome. I was okay. So one of the coolest features we found was uh, kind of up towards kind of the top of the escarpment. There was this giant boulder that um, it was tall. It was probably six six feet high, mm -hmm. and it had these really deep cupules carved out of them. So they're these like water collection basins. And so, um, and you know, you see these kind of in, in boulders around, and they're usually, you know, I don't know, like your standard bowl size, smaller, that kind of thing. These guys were, uh, God, I think 18 inches deep and oh about uh, a foot across. And, and so they were huge, and there were, I think, uh, got four to six of them on the top of that boulder. But the really cool feature was that the ones that were pecked out near the edge they had actually created spouts. And so what it looked like is that you could set up a, a jar below it. Uh -huh. And so when the rain came and it filled up those basins, it would just start filling up the jar. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. I've never <laughs> seen anything like it. It's a very unique feature. And, uh, and I've I, never heard of anything like yeah, that. I have a very soft spot for water management features. Mm -hmm. and, and that just it really hit me, hit my heart hard. <laughs> That's really cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing your guys' research, and I hope your field season goes really well. Great. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. I'm at the SAA poster session. I'm standing in front of a poster entitled The Chain Opatoire of the Late Archaic Through Messia or Messilla. Messia, Messia phase assemblages from the Placitas Arroyo site complex in the lower, lower Rio Grande Valley, New Mexico. And I'm here with Alexandra C. Younger, and this is her poster. Alexandra, can you tell me a little bit about your poster, your research, and what this is all about? Certainly. This is from a, a complex of sites that we've had housed at the University of North Texas for, uh, well, 40 years, maybe more. It seems like a lot of collections don't ever get looked at. Yeah, and you know, in my opinion, it's kind of the way to go if you want to do a master's because the funding isn't really well required unless you just want to get a couple things done like dates or something like that. So um, one of my advisors, I have two, uh, one of them is Steve Wolverton, uh, the other one is Dr. Reed Faring, who's more a geoarchaeologist and specializes in not just lithics, but a lot of old world lithics. And he's always wanted somebody to look at this assemblage. Namely because uh, it's it's interesting in that there's a lot of similarities to 
something you would see in, say, a Paleolithic assemblage in the Old World, uh-huh. and that's largely due to the dominance of flake technology as opposed to um, bipolar, or, sorry, excuse me, um, bifacial technology. So what's interesting about this site, it's located in the Hornada Mogollon, uh, southern New Mexico. The Hornada Mogollon itself was widely variable. It's very hard to say during this period, this is how everyone in the Hornada Mogollon was subsisting and how they were organized. Um, but what we do know is that during periods of um, parts of the archaic, but largely into the formative, there was a large emphasis of, um, of succulent uh, processing, uh, and it was, it was a large part of the diet. And so we don't see a whole lot of evidence of things like hunting at this site, and we do see a lot of evidence of a wide variety of flake tools that probably have a lot to do with processing. But we were more interested in, instead of just kind of comparing formal to informal tools, what were the nuances in the reduction and in the approach of creating all these tools? Because they're all made of very well, widely available resources. They're not terribly highly uh, high quality, which is pretty common during the archaic and early formative, um, as communities were getting more and more pressurized. Uh, they wanted, they were taking advantage of resources that were widely available. And if you go out to this site, that's all you see are large cobbles of a plethora of mostly volcanic and some sedimentary materials. So what we saw and what I found analyzing just the flakes from these materials is there was some very subtle differences in how they, the complexity of preparation, uh, whether it was the type of scar patterns applied as the amount of dorsal cortex pertained to it. So if you had a higher amount of dorsal cortex, you saw uh, a different type of flaking pattern. Uh, And then if you look at just size and shape of the flakes, you see something entirely different going on with platform preparation. And between the kind of more low quality and sort of medium quality, uh, I think with the medium quality stuff, we see more complex platform preparation. So there's more to learn about this. Uh, I should probably go into looking at interior flakes, but I think the takeaway of this is that even seemingly informal assemblages uh, kind of have their own nuances and they have purposes. Products always had a purpose in the end. Uh, And if I wanted to be more middle range theory about it, I'll probably look at some ethnographic uh, material that has to do with plant processing, specifically in the desert southwest. And so are the things you're mostly saying here are general expedient tools and maybe scrapers and cutting tools as opposed to, you know, what everybody loves, those projectile points, spear points, arrowheads. That's really All cool. of that and then more. And probably a lot of tools we still haven't figured out what they're used for. Are you guys um, looking at edgeware analysis? One should do that, but we probably won't for the purpose of this thesis. Um, but in terms of any of the material that's been recovered from the site, whether it's the groundstone, the ceramics, or the lithics themselves, uh, all of that could look at a second do-over and a more fine-tuned kind of approach and analysis. Definitely, uh, this would be worthy of, of someone else's PhD, indeed. Oh, fair enough. And so, for you, what do you see like as your next big step with this information? I do want to look at, um, just go a little bit deeper into the production process. That's the whole point of Chain Operatoire, is to get from as early as you can with the procurement side all the way down to uh, retouch and discard. And in order to really 
form a full understanding of the full reduction process of the two materials that I did approach, uh, I need to look at some of the interior flakes and okay. see if there was anything else complex going on there. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, in the end, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's really cool. And just as a fun end note, what was one of your favorite things that you saw from this collection that you're like, that's pretty darn cool? Hmm, that's a good question. Honestly, I think it was just the volume of material that was the most overwhelming and the the fact that I couldn't, and people I know who are really good at lithics, not able to pin down what all the tools really were meant for. Yeah. Um, there's some really beautiful material, some jasper. Uh, we don't really know where that came from. Uh, in fact, the coolest thing I found was a, a jasper drill, and it almost looks like it was never used. So uh, we're not really sure. Was, is it really a drill? Was it meant for something else? Was it decorative? Um, and <laughs> ironically, that was one of the bifacial tools that we recovered. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's hard to say what's the most interesting. It, it's it's the compilation of all of it. It's the groundstone. It's the it's the pit houses. You know. So just the breadth of the collection. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. It's very unique. And I'll be the first to say, I mean, our collections are so underutilized. I think it's wonderful you did this project, and I look forward to hearing more about it. Thanks. Uh, and I would tell your listeners, those who are considering a master's program and don't know what the heck to do, if there's a place you can go that has extensive collections, that's where to start. Go there. It's just a master's. Master's is a stepping stone to the greater things you want to do. So, uh, yeah. That's the takeaway. agree. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling me about your research. Yeah, my pleasure. Hi, my name is Jessica Bernstetter. Um, I'm with the Department of Anthropology at University of Missouri. And my poster today is on urban planning and access to water in Pompeii. And this is preliminary results from a field survey that we did in summer of 2018. Uh, with some of our undergraduate students and we looked at how water is piped in throughout the city, um, specifically how it is piped to a villa called the House of Epibo. Um, and we're interested in looking at um, how those water features are visible from uh, entrances to the house so if people from the public could see that or if it's more visible to people within, if they're using it to display wealth, um, to guests that they're entertaining uh, in their home. Was there a particular reason you picked this house? Oh, uh, well, actually this house, we already knew where the piping was because we had, um, one of our colleagues is an engineer um, that works for uh, a paleo-hydrological institute. Um, so he came in and they did some uh, metal detecting at this house, um, and then we're expanding that to other houses next summer. That's a good so, reason. Yeah, so we just happen to have that data already, um, but we're hoping to expand our sample size okay. so, and look at how everything's connected. Excellent. So what did you end up kind of finding with your preliminary? Oh, sure, yeah. So um, we found that if you're looking through the entrances of the house, um, only one or two water features are visible. So we have an impluvium, which was a uh, water catchment system. It came in from um, an open area in the roof, and it drained into a cistern. And then from the service entrance, you don't see any water features. And then from the lower entrance, uh, you see uh, one one water feature. So. There, weren't, there wasn't a whole lot of visibility from these sort of public spaces, uh, but there was a lot more visibility we saw. Uh, you could see about five or six water features um, from the dining room area, the outdoor triclinium, where they would have been entertaining their guests. Okay. Yeah.
So status for invited parties, not necessarily the wider world, exactly. preliminarily. Right, right, right. Yeah. So now we're looking at, um, since we know where all the piping is now from our metal detecting, we want to see um, how the piping got from the water tower, which was um, about 300 meters away or so, um, how it got from the water tower down to the house. So we're looking at kind of the external piping. Okay, fascinating. And then like, because you're talking about Pompeii, mm -hmm. right? Um, I have to ask if there's anything interesting about this particular house in relation to the eruption of Vesuvius, because oh. I feel like I can't not ask that question. Um, well, it's, it's got a lot of nice preservation. Um, one of the water features in particular has this beautiful bronze figurine, um, and a lot of the material that was found at this house has been transferred to the Naples Museum, so you can actually go and see it. Um, preserved. Uh, it has a lot of beautiful frescoes. So, I mean, of course, because Vesuvius erupted, it kind of created a very unique circumstance for the whole site. There's excellent levels of preservation, and we really get to do a lot since all of that stuff, or most of that stuff, is still in place. So, yeah. it's really fascinating. It's a great place to work. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. this episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast. Special thanks to all of the archaeologists who are willing to share their research on the podcast. Our intro and outro music is by Kristen Elliott. Check out the Women in Archaeology blog at womeninarchaeology.com. Our Twitter handle is at womenarchies, and you can contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>